morning. I am Dr. Johnson with Johnson Medical Associates. I am the primary physician and owner, and it is my pleasure today to have with me Cameron Center. Uh, Cameron is head of our brain division uh, at Johnson Medical Associates. At Johnson Medical Associates, we deal with many chronic disease problems. Uh, those problems involve all parts of the body. Uh, the brain is affected by many of those. So if a person has allergies, it affects brain function. If they have a traumatic brain injury, if they have a toxic exposure, uh, food reactions uh, affect brain function. So it's very important for us to understand the brain part of how we feel and then how actually it affects the rest of our, our body systems. It is the control part that controls our uh, not only our thought process, but our digestion, our movements, uh, our breathing, uh, our sleep patterns. So it is important we understand it. Uh, over the years, it's been my experience that uh, we need to develop techniques uh, to evaluate the different parts of the body, whether it's pulmonary function for lungs, whether it's stress tests for heart or diagnostic tests uh, that help us determine what the liver, uh, the kidneys are doing, uh, measurement of toxins in the system to look at our uh, body's uh, load of toxins, uh, our genetics on how uh, our body is handling what we're exposed to, whether it's uh, exogenous toxins or whether it's medications. So today uh, we're going to discuss with Cameron uh, the evaluation of the brain. Uh, there's many ways to evaluate the brain. Uh, most commonly we see people have CAT scans or MRIs of the brain to look at brain structure. Uh, then there's different ways to look at brain function. And today we're going to talk about brain function evaluation, which involves central nervous system evaluation, uh, how good your memory is, uh, what it looks like uh, in short-term, long-term memory, as well as then how to help repair the brain. Uh, and so, Cameron, it is a pleasure to have you this, today with us. Cameron has a bachelor's of science in psychology, uh, business, and counseling. Correct. And then he also is board certified in neurofeedback. And it's been my pleasure to work with him. And also prior to uh, that, I worked with Cameron's father. Yeah. Who's uh, in Fort Worth and uh, is a PhD uh, psychologist. Uh, so it's been a family thing for you. Right. A passion. And so could you tell us a little bit about your background and then exactly what uh, neurofeedback is and what it's useful for and how it can uh, help people to improve their uh, sleep patterns or different uh, functions of the brain that they may be struggling with? Absolutely. So there's a lot to unpack there, right? So we'll start by how I kind of got into the field of neurofeedback and QEG assessment. So as you alluded to, my, my father works in the field and he started working for in neurofeedback when he was finishing his counseling and psychology degrees and was working in mental health care hospitals. And he'd come home, I'll you know, never forget, he'd come home at 10 o'clock at night, 
be exhausted, way more exhausted than when he would come home from military service, you know, spent 23 years in the Marine Corps, retired, and then got involved in counseling and psychology. And he would complain about how the system was sicker than the people that came in to get help. And so um, I just never forget him expressing that frustration with the fact that he wants to help people, but doesn't really know how to help people. And so he started working with Dr. Amen um, in the Change Your Brain, Change Your Life book, realizing that why is it that psychiatrists are the only doctors in the medical industry that don't image the organ they work on? And it doesn't make any sense. You know, if you broke your arm and you went into the hospital and they tried to put a cast on you without an x-ray, you'd say, wait, we're skipping a step here. But people who go into mental health facilities frequently don't have their brain imaged or, or any other organ image to see what's going on in terms of biological processes. So long story short, my dad started getting EEG equipment so that he could kind of unpack and unravel what are ways to assess the brain to combine with other therapy modalities like counseling or eventually what it led it into was neurofeedback. So my first experience was his guinea pig in high school. I got hooked up to the EEG because uh, my sisters didn't want the gel in their hair. So I, I got to, you know, I vol- was voluntold, right? And so uh, that was my first experience, you know, just with the hookup process and seeing how the technology worked. And then I helped him, you know, set up his business, just putting furniture together and just saw him kind of grow from working in the mental health care hospitals into, you know, working specifically with patients using this technology. So when I went off to college, I, I you know, went to go do my own thing. I was pre-law um, and got the opportunity around my junior year of, high school, or of college, rather, to work as an intern um, while I was fi- finishing up my psychology degree. And so um, I had gotten a call and s- said somebody was looking for some technical help who needed um, somebody to just set up computers and printers and all that kind of stuff. And so that was my first experience just working in a clinic and it was with a social worker. It wasn't even with a, a medical doctor. And what they were working with was specifically biofeedback, teaching people um, how to calm their heart rate through different breath exercises. Um, and then also into the introduction into QEEG. So we kind of alluded to um, measuring brain function and using you know technology to assist in our assessments of brain health and what we use is quantitative EEG and quantitative EEG is similar to neuroquant which is a quantitative MRI where it takes the raw data of an electroencephalography and compares it to a normative database so that you can see in a comparison to healthy brains what areas of the brain may be Uh, overactive or underactive in terms of using too much energy or too little energy, talking too much or talking too little, or going too fast or going too slow. Um, And so that was kind of my intro was just getting thrown into it, you know, with my dad being involved in the field and then um, getting some hands-on experience in college. And so when I started working as an intern, I was like, man, this is really cool work. People are getting a lot better when they're you know, training the brain instead of just talking about their issues or just, you know, taking medication to try to address their mental health symptoms. And so I finished my degree in, like you said, psychology, counseling, and business. And, and had, you know, wanted to go on for a higher 
education, but there really wasn't anything available to me at the time. So I got my certification in neurofeedback, continued working at the clinic that I was interning at, but was you know now the lead neurofeedback technician. And then around 2020 was when I got a call from you saying that you were looking for somebody to you know come on that to bring neurofeedback into the practice, right? Because you were already doing some QEEG assessments for your hyperbaric patients, for those people who were coming in either with history of head injury or um, toxicity that was causing neurological symptoms. And you were already doing those assessments for pre and post hyperbaric oxygen therapy, um, but you wanted to add neurofeedback in, right? And so what is neurofeedback? Um, neurofeedback, I mentioned biofeedback earlier, where biofeedback is a process where you measure any biological you know, measurement. So with heart rate, galvanic skin response, EEG, um, and you use that measurement and the education of what you're measuring to change the function. So the easiest way to think about it is, is through heart rate. When we, when we breathe at a certain pace, our heart rates will follow that breath pacer. And if you measure the heart rate and you measure the breath rate, you can actually see it on a screen in front of you change as you change your heart rate. And so <clears throat> what neurofeedback does is it's EEG biofeedback. We are informing the brain on what it is doing electrically to try to encourage a change via operant conditioning through a positive and negative reinforcement. And um, so the way that looks or the way that works is you've got an EEG cap on your head while it's measuring all the little squiggly brain waves as they're going on in real time. And there's a lot of different ways to, you know, montage the EEG out. Uh, we use a 19 channel Z-score montage, which allows us to look at deeper structures in the brain, not just the cortical structures. And, and we measure the electrical efficiency in comparison to those databases. We see what areas are underactive, overactive, et cetera, like I was just explaining. And then we retrain the brain by encouraging it when it's electrically efficient and by dehabituating when it's not. So the way that looks is you're watching a TV screen and when the brain is in that sweet spot of it's doing what we want it to do, if you know we're working on um, focus and attention, we want the fast wave activity to come out and the slow wave activity to calm down. And when that happens, the screen goes bright and the sound of whatever they're watching goes up. And then as that slow wave activity comes back that is associated with the symptom of inattentiveness, <clears throat> the screen goes dim and the sound goes down. So through that positive and negative reinforcement, the brain can actually retrain itself how to be more efficient. So that's kind of how, why we're, why we introduced it or why you introduced it rather into your practice as a, another modality of treatment for certain, um, brain deficiencies, as well as um, the assessment tool of what's going on and what's changing in people's brains as we go through treatment processes. I know that was kind of a, a long-winded how I got into it and what we're doing with it. Um, but Oh, that's thanks for so much. Yeah, that of course. Very good explanation. So basically, uh, what you're doing is looking at how to reinforce the good parts, uh, decrease the negative input in the brain so that the brain can function and communicate within itself connectivity wise so that it is efficient in its function. 
so you aren't using extra brain energy, but also optimizing the areas that need to be optimized for optimal brain function. And we see that many different people have problems with focus, uh, with attention. And one of the things we were talking about earlier was uh, people like with ADD, ADHD, focus problems, kids particularly, uh, have problems with it. So what's your experience with working with uh, these type of individuals? Well, ADHD is, I think, the sweet spot of neurofeedback training because of the nature of having to pay attention in order to get the feedback response. So first of all, in terms of assessment for ADD, ADHD, you know, the, the DSM-5 is calling it ADHD now. There's ADD is no longer, you know, in that diagnostic category. But at the end of the day, we, we're really not that interested in what the categories are labeled, right? We, we want to see what is the function of a person's, you know, central nervous system and why are they not able to pay attention? We, we see the, the lack of ability to pay attention as a symptom and what's causing that symptom, right? So for your, your typical inattentive ADHD, the, the brain is stuck in a brainwave frequency called theta, which is one of the slower frequencies and it's associated with daydreamy, you know, restful, but not necessarily into sleep. And when we're measuring their EEG and they're sitting there in a you know, resting state where a normal brain would be oscillating at nine to 10 Hertz, theirs are oscillating somewhere between, you know, six to eight Hertz. And so there is a, a lack of fast wave activity for them to be able to push their attention towards something that they are intending. So the misnomer is that people with ADHD can't pay attention, and that's not necessarily true. It's they can't choose what to pay attention to, right? It's the squirrel moment, right? Where you just get pulled away from whatever it is that you're wanting to keep your attention on. And so through the assessment process, we're trying to see what are those brainwave frequencies and ratios looking like? Is there more theta activity in a resting state than alpha and beta. And if there is, then that person is going to struggle with those symptoms. And let's, then let's back up just a minute so sure, people yeah. can understand what we're talking about, because you have slow waves mm -hmm. and then you have fast waves. Right. So the slow waves are what you need for what type of activity and the fast waves are then what do you need just yeah, let's simple, let, we'll take simple a term, sure. simple term. I'll take a step back and just go through all of them. So the the first, when we're talking about waves, what we're what we're looking at is on an EEG, how often does the signal go up and down within a second, and however many times it goes up and down within a second is that the hertz or the frequency. So one to four times per second is delta, a delta wave, and it looks something like that, where it's slow and rhythmic and that happens when we get into deep sleep deep restful sleep especially um into you know true deep sleep not quite rim as the the eyes are moving rapidly um but when we're getting deep restorative sleep our brains get into delta waves now that's that's a healthy delta wave we'll see excess delta wave activity and aging populations for people who are going through dementia type processes Alzheimer's and dementias. So those are the people that are older, that are sleeping all the time, hard to arouse. Right. And when you put an EEG on them and they're, you know, they're, they're awake in your office, but their brains are making 
excess delta activity, that's that's usually no good. Um, and if you think about it just from a physics standpoint, if things are moving slowly, right, then you're not going to be able to, to have um, fast excitatory processes. And so when a person's brain is in delta, they're usually resting, they're sleeping. Now, when we see a lack of delta activity, it's usually evidence that that person has not been getting enough deep, restful, quality sleep. So that's one to four hertz delta associated with sleep and rest. Five to eight hertz is considered theta, which I mentioned earlier. And theta in a healthy brain is associated with um, inattentive, daydreamy, not focused and paying attention, or or mindful but internally focused. So when you meditate, your your brain goes into a deep theta state. In fact, when they do EEGs on the Tibetan monks, when they go into deep meditation, it, it's incredible how much their brains um, in, completely go into a theta state. It's like they're they're not on this planet anymore. They're completely in their own heads. Um, and the experience of the meditator would tell you that that, that makes sense. Um, we see that, again, excess theta activity, though, in people who've had history of head injury or have had a recent concussion. Um, the, the thought is that as the brain is injured, it goes into those slow wave functions for healing, resting, and repairing. And so when you have a hit to the head, um, oftentimes the brain will get stuck in a theta state uh, where you're inattentive and you know, daydreamy, not really focused on what's going on around you, but more internally focused. A, redu a reduction in theta can oftentimes um, be seen as uh, restlessness. You know, you're not able to get into those meditative, um, calm, relaxed states. Um, 9 to 12 hertz, the next frequency range is alpha. And it's called alpha because when they first started putting EEGs on people's heads, that was the first brainwave frequency that was picked up. And alpha is kind of the gatekeeper between focus and concentration and rest and relaxation. So it's like neutral in your car. If you can't idle in alpha, you're going to have a hard time speeding up or slowing down. We see too much alpha, especially in the frontal lobes with adults. It can be indicative of depression symptoms. Um, where the, the executive functioning network and that frontal lobe, you know, functions are idling too much, um, can be an issue and a reduction of alpha can be similar to the same thing as a reduction in theta where you've got, you know, the inability to, to be focused and relaxed. And then as we move on in frequencies, we get into the different beta ranges. And the reason why I say beta ranges is because beta is the brain in action. So the first range is that 12 to 15 hertz, where we see that especially over the, the sensorimotor rhythm, the SMR um, frequency, which is awake, alert, and ready for action. So if you imagine like your shortstop who's still, but as soon as that ball's hit, they're going to react to it and they're ready to move. Their brains are resting in a little bit faster state than what we are just sitting here, right? We see a lot of... Uh, Different things pop up in beta, especially, you know, when I first started working for you, we noticed that a lot of those people who were dealing with mold toxicity had this interesting pattern of high beta activity, you know, right on the on the top of the, the skull. And as we did our research, we realized that that's actually a, an, inflamed, an inflammation biomarker. Um, and so 
we started to see that that inflammation biomarker went down when people were being treated with hyperbaric, which was Correct. really interesting. We can talk about that in a minute. But so beta is the brain in action, right? Uh, and the faster you get, uh, the more um, energy that's being spent as the, the, the fast frequencies use a lot of energy, even though they're small in, in terms of um, their voltage. Um, so healthy beta brain function uh, in terms of processing information, you know, learning, um, doing any sort of high order thinking. If you have too much beta, it can be indicative of anxiety or, or stress, the over-rumination of the brain or hypervigilance. And then a reduction of beta um, is similar to an excess of theta where you don't really have all of the energy necessary for, you know, all to have all your mental faculties ab about you. So um, if you have a reduction in beta, you're going to find it hard to focus and concentrate, to learn new things, to um, have areas of the brain connect that, you know, don't normally connect that you need to connect in terms of learning, right? And so for our ADHD population that we alluded to, we see excess theta and reduced beta. And we look at that ratio of what the theta to beta looks like. If a person is complaining about those symptoms, I can't focus, I can't concentrate, I'm having a hard time, I feel like I've got brain fog all the time. And we've obviously you know, done all the, all the panels of what could be causing these symptoms. And at the end, there's nothing that we see. So it, it you know, but they've got a genetic history. Mom and dad have a hard time focusing, paying attention. You know, they've been diagnosed with ADHD and been put on ADHD medication at, at times before, but you know, it'll work for a little bit and then it stopped working. And so a lot of adults who were, you know, given the ADHD label and have been dealing with medication on and off oftentimes find that the meds aren't doing their job as they were at the beginning. And so, um, if they've got these biomarkers that we can track and then train, we can address those symptoms through retraining the brain. So my, my job when I'm working with folks like that, I'm really, I'm a trainer. I'm showing them what their brain is doing. I am informing them on tips and te techniques and tricks in order to bring their focus to the forefront of their attention. And then the feedback process of, of using the EEG to inform the person that yes, you're on it, you're, you're focused or you're attended, um, allows them to go through that training process in the same way that you would go to the gym and lift weights until your muscles get bigger, right? It's the person sitting in the chair who's doing the work themselves in order to retrain their brain based on the biomarkers that we measure that correlate to those symptoms that they're, you know, they're dealing with. So that kind of gives you a, a brief explanation of the brainwave frequencies and how they're important, both in, in terms of a healthy brain and also what we expect to see in people who are dealing with symptoms. And so the QEEG assessment helps us to analyze and find those areas of deficit. And then the neurofeedback process allows us to use those measurements to then retrain the brain um, to address symptoms. Excellent explanation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it is important as we go through and evaluate uh, patients with chronic type problems of you, as you have been describing, that we understand what the brain is doing. Uh, the brain is the control mechanism. If the brain's not functioning right, then it's hard for the person to feel good and to function well in the environment. And 
as you pointed out, anxiety is, is a big issue today, uh, and it's part of what could be ADHD. It can be just part of our constant exposure to stressful situations in our daily living with all the input we have from social media, from people around us, from stressful situations. Uh, so that that plays a part in trying to help people to feel better, uh, to cope with their environment. Uh, at envirom at uh, Johnson Medical Associates, we see there's many environmental factors that affect the person's individual function. And it can be foods, it can be the environment around you, which is pollens, dust, molds, exposure. It can be indoor mold exposure, toxins, as you talked about, which affects the brain. And it can be prior head injuries. And this is one of the things we see fairly frequently. If you do not take a full history and ask them about prior head injuries, uh, it does not show up, but it is picked up very easily with a QEEG. And we see people that have fallen as kids, uh, were dropped as babies even, uh, sports uh, injuries, uh, people that play soccer that head the ball frequently. Yeah, they don't uh, think about it, do they? They don't think about those as head injuries. No, they don't, but they do show up and it, uh, what is significant when we run a QEEG. So if people are having cognitive function or dysfunction, uh, trouble with focus, with concentration, headaches, yeah. uh, sleep problems, uh, it, QEEG is very, very helpful in defining what actually is going on and then a definitive treatment can be uh, formulated for them, whether it's uh, neurofeedback. Uh, what we have found uh, in doing our studies with and in conjunction with hyperbaric uh, is that you were telling me the response that the patients have if they're doing hyperbaric with neurofeedback is much more rapid. Uh, they're definitely synergistic. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. Where when I first started working for Dr. Johnson, I, I had worked at a, a clinic previously that just did neurofeedback and biofeedback, and um, so I had some experience on and what I expected for response time for people. You know, when we're doing neurofeedback training, and I started getting a handful of patients who had already completed 20 to 40 hours of hyperbaric and they were doing five to 10 sessions in neurofeedback before they would go off to school or, or whatnot. You know, we had a lot of college students that come in because dorm rooms are notoriously moldy. And uh, yeah, we saw them train really, really well and really quickly um, towards, we call it z towards z, z equals zero. Um, because we're looking at standard deviations, we always want those um, most deviant measurements to work their way towards the norm. And I was noticing that, yeah, after people were doing hyperbaric oxygen, that movement towards the norm was happening at an accelerated pace, uh, you know, and, and after doing some research into hyperbaric, that makes a ton of sense because, well, you get a lot of accelerated paces with uh, the hyperbaric oxygen, particularly in the way that it affects cellular function. And at the end of the day, you know, when we're when we're encouraging certain brain function, those things are happening at the cellular level. And so if you can, you know, increase cell function by eating well, sleeping right, and getting good exercise, 
or doing other you know treatment modalities like hyperbaric, then the system is going to work a whole lot better. And I wanted to mention, you know, as you were explaining, you know, different things that we've used before with with head injury. Um, oftentimes, as I'm training people using these technologies, I'm also teaching them teaching them about their own. <clears throat> The, only, the, the things that we do on our everyday life that affect our brain function and our physical health, which are these three, diet, sleep, and exercise. And it's incredible how many people come to us and are complaining about symptoms and no one has ever talked to them about those three things. They don't talk to them about what they're putting in their body and what they're eating. People don't ask enough questions about sleep and sleep hygiene. You, know, you mentioned about how much of our environment can affect our, our brain function and our health. So much of the env of the environmental issues are self-administered. You know, we have our phones on too long at night. We stay up watching TV for far too long. You know, we don't drink enough water. We drink too much sugary beverages. You know, we all like to put, you know, tons of sugar and milk into our coffee in the morning. We're highly caffeinated, which is not necessarily a problem. But if you're not sleeping and you're using caffeine to get your focus in the day, you're working up a creek without a paddle. The best thing you can do for focus is get good sleep. And, and when people are saying, oh, I sleep eight hours a day. And you're like, well, what time are you sleeping for eight hours? From 4 a.m. to noon. It's like, that's not good sleep. Yeah, you may be getting eight hours, but you want to sleep when the sun is down. Because so much of our hormone system and the way that our brains and bodies function is based on what the, what's going up in the sky. And so if you're avoiding the first early morning sunlight and then you're like, well, I can't focus. It's like, well, try being up when the sun is up, right? And so a lot of what we try to do, you know, and, and one of the reasons why I was so excited to start working with you a few years ago was the idea of actual true functional medicine and holistic care, right? Where we're not just looking at one test and we're not just looking at one thing, but taking into consideration not only an extensive history, but also explaining and, and teaching people what they can be doing on their own so they're not just looking to you, the doc, to fix them, right? Exactly. Mm. Uh, so many patients I see come in and say, well, this medicine's not working, that medicine's not working. Uh, well, it's not a medicine that's causing the problem. And the medicine is only trying to alter some sort of function in her body. Right. Medicines are important. Don't get me wrong. They, they really help a lot of things. But when we're trying to look at optimal health, how to take care of yourself, and how to fix a lot of these chronic ongoing problems, you have to look at underlying factors. And one of them, like you say, is sleep. And you have to have good sleep for your brain to function well and the rest well. And I see people coming in all the time saying they're fatigued. And they've never had a sleep study done or monitoring overnight whether they are hypoxic. There's a simple device that I give my patients that fits on your finger, measures your oxygen saturation. People are much more familiar with them since COVID because everybody has an oximeter. Uh, I have them in the office where they monitor overnight your oxygen saturation. And I'm surprised at the number of people that desaturate during the night. They have apnea type episodes. If you have those episodes, you do not sleep well. You do not get restful sleep. Uh, so that's an important issue. So Cameron and I work together uh, to help people improve 
their overall health, their brain function. And in order to do that, as you were explaining, you have to have a good diet. Uh, people that have food reactions uh, causes brain dysfunction. It also causes stimulation. One of the old, old techniques to measure food reaction was to eat one food at a time and measure your pulse before and after eating those foods. If your pulse increased 10 to 15 times a minute, more a minute from before to after eating, that was a stimulatory food to you and would be implied that maybe omitting that food would help decrease your anxiety, help your focus. And from that point, people work then forward. Now we do different blood tests to help define food sensitivities. We do skin tests to define it. And then we put people on healthy diets, omitting the foods that they are reactive to or stimulatory to that to help with this, to calm their brain down. We see that a lot with hyperactive kids, uh, that different foods will affect them. We see it with adults. Uh, frequently, we see people that are uh, dairy intolerant, uh, people that are gluten intolerant, and then people that react to different spices like garlic and onion uh, oftentimes cause problems with people. Uh, so as we work together, uh, if people are having problems, we look at diet. Uh, Cameron then works with them with helping to normalize their brain function through the neurofeedback. And then there's some other techniques that you use also. Right. Uh, there's the um, different devices that work with the vagus nerve, right. different devices that work with the alpha waves. Yep. Uh, can you explain some of what those devices are? There's even light devices. That, right. Yeah. Yeah. The light devices. Yeah. They're cool. So we, we break down um, different techniques. So we got neurofeedback and biofeedback as training techniques. And then we've got what we call neuromodulation which is anything that is going to encourage the brain to do something different or the, or the central nervous system to do something different than what it's doing, you know, before using stimulation anywhere from small electrical pulses using a transcranial alternating current uh, system or, or stimulation, a transcranial direct current stimulation, pink noise and random noise, which have an influence on the way that the, the brain responds to that, you know, used to like, even 10, 15 years ago, we thought hitting the brain with random noise confuses it. What we realize now is that the brain is the most random noise generator in the known universe. Our brains are more complex than what we understand universes as like star systems are. So it's, it's way bigger than what we expect it to be. And, and so the way it responds in modulation oftentimes is it actually will reset itself when it's given uh, random noises to play with or or different types of random noise stimulation. So there's white noise, you know, what we know as background noise that's just really truly random. Pink noise, which is an inverse solution of a random noise generator that causes the brain to um, reset in a way. Uh, it's a very uh, broad description of what, what what's happening in that. And, and then a little less intense stimulations in the electrical side of things is a PEMF. So we, we work with 
uh, some practitioners that use the large magnetic coils, um, like Dr. Miller um, using the MERT, the magnetic uh, re resonance therapy. Um, we have PEMF in our office, pulsed electromagnetic field stimulation, which uses coils to create a, a very small, about five volt um, magnetic frequency um, field that will increase blood flow. So when you put a, a coil of PEMF, you know, on a shoulder, knee, head, anywhere, it's going to increase blood flow in that area. You're going to have an activation of glial cells, which are all the non-neuronal cells within the central nervous system, all the supporting figures. Um, and then you can modulate to stimulate at certain frequencies. And because the brain is an energy efficient organ, which is both to our benefit and demise, part of the reason why things like depression, anxiety, and ADHD become cyclical cycles, or, you know, or rather cyclical uh, experiences of the brain is because the brain is an energy efficient organ and those are defense mechanisms. Our anxiety is a defense mechanism. Something happened that's causing me to be on high alert and stay on high alert so that nothing bad happens again, right? Um, and so the energy efficiency part of that needs to be worked on. You have to show the brain, hey, it's actually more efficient now. You're out of that situation. You know, if it was an experiment or, or environmental, you know, issue, um, or if it's genetic, you have to show it, hey, it's better to function like this than like that. So when we're using PEMF at specific frequencies, you can encourage the brain um, to, so if you're working on ADHD, you can encourage it to hit it with a, an alpha hertz frequency so that resting state isn't quite in the theta and the brain will follow it. You're, you're showing it what to do, but it, it doesn't not always stick in the same way that medication doesn't stick. Those are stimulation techniques that can be helpful in the you know immediate future for symptom relief uh, and we'll use it to kind of show the brain what we want it to do and then we'll go through the neurofeedback process and actually have it do it on its own reward it with you know positive reinforcement when it's doing what you want it to do and then dehabituating when it doesn't so that's pemf then you've got uh, vagal nerve stimulators uh, which has really become our favorite right uh, because so many deficits that people are dealing with is affecting their vagus nerve. And so really quickly, if for those of you who don't know what the vagus nerve is, it's one of the longest nerves in the body. In the body. It starts at the brainstem, it works all its way down, it innervates in the neck, it attaches to the heart, it attaches to the diaphragm, and then it goes and attaches to the colon. And it's, the vagus nerve comes from the Latin word vagabond, which means to wander. And when you see that nerve in the body, it looks like a tree branch that's wandering up the body and even wanders up the neck and then attaches at the brainstem. And it's in charge of uh, the parasympathetic side of our central nervous systems. So we've got sympathetic rest or fight or flight, parasympathetic rest and digest. And the vagus nerve modulates when we go into rest and digest. We saw that people with long call COVID were having a lot of issues in vagal tone and their vagal nerve function where uh, their digestion was off, their sleep was off, all the all the the things related to the parasympathetic nervous system function were dysregulated. And, and there's a couple different ways to stimulate that nerve. The easiest and cheapest way is through diaphragmatic breath because that nerve attaches to the diaphragm. So when we teach people HRV techniques, we're teaching them how to stimulate the vagus nerve. Sometimes explain HRV take. Yeah, so we, I mentioned it earlier where we're measuring the heart rate, and and then you're showing the person 
a breath pattern to follow. So if we are in a resting state and you're using your diaphragm to, to breathe, um, your heart rate should follow a, a pattern of your breath rate so that when you breathe in, the heart rate goes up and as you breathe out, the heart rate goes down. And what you're measuring is the variability of the beat to beat interval. So how high does the, does the heart rate go and how low does it go in the middle of the breath? And the greater that variability of the upbeat and the downbeat, the healthier or the more resilient the heart. This is why we see, you know, uh, runners have really low resting heart rates, but they can also have their high heart rate for an extended period of time and their heart be pumping efficiently. Well, we also want our hearts to be pumping efficiently when we're resting, right? right. And so oftentimes we see people with anxiety especially or some of these other um, food-related symptoms that their heart rates are elevated. They're in a sympathetic, you know, fight-or-flight mode in a, when they're not supposed to be what we would consider a dysregulated um, sympathetic nervous system response. And if you teach them how to calm their nervous systems down on their own, well, then they don't need to pop that Xanax. So that breathing looks like what when you are teaching somebody? So you got a heart rate monitor going, they can see their heart rate on the screen in front of them and you show them a breath pattern and the breath pattern will go sinusoidal. Uh, one of the easiest ways to do it is on your Apple Watch. Your Apple Watch mindfulness app has this. I don't know if I can get that on the screen, but if you go to the mindfulness and you go to your breathe app, it's measuring the heart rate through the little electrode on the bottom, and it tells you, you know, when to breathe in and when to breathe out, and it will tell you what your heart rate is at the end of the exercise. So people can take their Apple Watches, measure their heart rate, do a little breathing exercise, watch their heart rate go down. Congratulations, you've just done biofeedback, the most basic form of biofeedback. And I would argue the most helpful. I think everybody needs to know how to do diaphragmatic breathing exercises. And so when you do that, what's the ratio of breathing in to breathing out? Good question. And then some people work with holding their breath in between. There's a lot of different techniques. You know, the, the military teaches box breathing, which is a way where you, you, know, you hold, you inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four. Uh, they call it a box because it looks like a box. So right. Um, and that helps with, you know, holding the gun steady as you're aiming. And um, the technique I tend to teach is a sinusoidal breath. And what I mean by that is an even, an even breath rate in and an even exhale ratio out about a 12 second breath. So five breaths per minute. And when you're setting them up on these devices, that's how they get uh, set up. So it's a five second inhale, a one second hold, five second exhale and a one second hold. And I have people put one hand on your belly, one hand on your chest, and make sure that it's your belly hand that's rising and falling and that your chest cavity is staying still. If you breathe with your chest, that's, that's no good. Your lungs actually want to expand down into the uh, into the abdomen, and that's how the vagus nerve actually gets um, it gets stimulated in that. So actually, when you breathe, there's different muscles that are part of your whole breathing mechanism. Right. You have chest muscles. And but the main muscle is the diaphragm muscle. Right. And the diaphragm it looks like a big dome sitting here under your ribs. Mm -hmm. And it goes up and down. Right. And that's why singers, runners, everyone that has efficient breathing 
is mainly from the diaphragm, but then the chest has to be free to move so it can expand to its optimal breathing capacity. And a lot of times I see patients come in and they don't know how to breathe. Right. And you try to do a pulmonary function test on them to see whether they have asthma or not. And you have to explain to them how to breathe first so you get an accurate pulmonary function test. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Uh, so so through doing HRV, that's the first way to do vagal nerve stimulation. We're, we're still on the vagal nerves, thing, right? right? Um, and there's a lot of different, because that nerve is so long and it goes so many different places, there's a lot of different ways that you can hit it. One of the first places I ever used when I was working in the other clinic, you put two little electrodes on the mastoid bone right here behind the ear and you stimulate, you know, and, and there's a different, there are different frequency protocols. Um, the one that we tended to use was fairly simple. It would cycle through about three or four different frequencies as a delta, theta, and alpha wave, kind of going through the whole gambit. But it was just stimulating back there and, and hitting that vagus nerve while I was having people do breathing exercises at the same time. And, and you know, it's funny, every time you'd hit somebody who was anxious with it, the first thing is be like, man, I feel like I'm, feel like I'm in a hammock, rocking a little bit. It's because you're 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 hitting that vagus nerve, and then they'll, this is kind of nice, and they'll you'll see them you know they'll get a little smile on their face, and then they'll start breathing, and then after a while, because I'm I'm measuring the EEG the whole time, and one of the things that really is, you know, the biggest enemy of good neurofeedback training is muscle tension. You know, if people are carrying tension in their jaws or their forehead then I can't pick up what's coming off of the brain. It's all what's going from the muscles. And so one of the first things that happens when you see people, you know, go into a relaxation mode is the tension releases. And so we, you know, get the tension released. And then now all of a sudden we can do really good biofeedback training or, and neurofeedback training rather, because we're not, we're not just training what's going on with the muscles around the face. So we've got different uh, devices. One that we, you know, rent out to people or we check out called a gamma core and it stimulates using two electrodes that go right here on the neck and it's on both sides and that device is specifically indicated for migraines and headaches because um, migraines and headaches are vagal uh, in nature the the vagus nerve modulates um, the activity that can cause a migraine or cause a headache um, and so we get people that device they'll hit themselves with it a couple times um, we've had some people who've had some, uh, you know, digestion issues. Their, their, you know, their GI tract is just inflamed and and unhappy. Their gut doesn't want to accept anything. Stimulate the vagus nerve, do a little breathing exercises. All of a sudden, the gut has calmed down a little bit, and those symptoms are relieved. Well, one of the things with the vagus nerve is, in all nerves, all cranial nerves, is there's afferent and efferent. I mean, outgo and in input right and the vagus nerve has a lot of feedback from the parts it innervates right we talk about the gut brain connection right and and that that's that connection <clears throat> exactly and so you're not only working with what the brain's telling the end organ but also what the brain's receiving back and that whole system has to be in balance for you to feel good absolutely and, and that's part of the reason why hrv is so helpful because <clears throat> You know, our, our brain can tell our body, hey, something's not right. You need to be anxious. It's like your eyes see the lion and it tells your heart, pump faster, it's time to run, right? Right. Well, the opposite is true. The heart can get 
can be in that mode of function, whether it's because you're not breathing right or it's because you, you know, you're eating stuff you shouldn't be, you're not sleeping. But if the heart rate is pumping fast, it can then go up and tell the brain, hey, we're anxious. And then all of a sudden we've got these anxiety symptoms. And so, you know, it's 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 shocking. You mentioned earlier how how often people with ADHD are also dealing with anxiety and vice versa. And, and they're going in to get help and they're getting help via medications that don't truly break those vicious cycles. And oftentimes we see that people have attention issues because they are anxious. You know, and they're but the only thing they realize is I, I'm not I'm not as successful in school or at work as I used to be. My focus is gone. I can't pay attention. And you start to do a little deep dive analysis and you're asking, well, why can't you pay attention? Because they're chronically anxious. They don't rest. You know, they don't eat right. They don't exercise. And so in order to help them with their attention, you've got to help them with their anxiety. And so if you just give them, you know, an Adderall to help because that's the symptom that they're expressing to the the professional that they're struggling with well you're just going to make them the problem worse then exactly and i see patients all the time that come into the office that says you know i saw my family practice i saw my psychiatrist and i started on some anti-anxiety medicines or antidepressant medicines and they say they aren't working they worked a little bit at first but they aren't working now and a lot of medications used now uh are SSRIs, where they're serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And there is a test we do in the office that looks at your neurotransmitters uh, and how well your body's able to produce those. We often see that the body is incapable or not producing enough of those neurotransmitters. So you have low serotonin and you wonder why the antidepressant's not working. So one of the areas we look at is in conjunction with what uh, Cameron's been talking about is doing that specific urine test for the neurotransmitters to see whether you have enough of serotonin or norepinephrine, dopamine, GABA, PEA that helps with focus or helps with calm, calming you down, uh, whether the serotonin is sufficient to help have adequate sleep. If not, then we use precursors, which are natural substances that help you make serotonin, like tryptophan, 5-HTP, or precursors of serotonin. Right. Uh, And so that helps, and then Cameron's able to evaluate and help retrain the brain, but you have to make sure that it has adequate hormones to work with. Right. Yeah, you've got to have the resources. Exactly. Or, or you're just working up a creek without a paddle. Um, so one of, one of the things, too, that I, I find is interesting is taking that, taking histories and, and asking people multiple questions. Because we talked about head injury. It's one of the things that, you know, we see a lot of because people are interested in hyperbaric for it. Um, but oftentimes people will come in, they're complaining about depression, anxiety, focus and attention. You ask them, do you have any history of head injury? So, no, no, I don't have any history of head injury. And then you, okay, have you ever had any car accidents? Oh, well, I've been in like three or four car accidents, never hit my head, but I've always had whiplash. Whiplash is a head injury. Exactly. Your your brain is a really, really soft, squishy tissue floating in fluid, like an oil, the same, um, you know, density as motor oil in a sharp skull. 
Well, as soon as your head, you know, whiplashes forward, that really, really soft object is being forced into that really, really sharp object. You're, you're going to get head injuries. I'll never forget this one time I was asking somebody about their history of head injury and they're like, oh, no, I've never really had a history. I, I, you know, I did have one time where my little brother hit me in the back of the head with a baseball bat and I blacked out for five minutes. And I thought to myself, how did you at first think that that wasn't a head injury? Um, but oftentimes we, we've got to ask a lot of questions. We've got to ask a lot of family history questions because we know that there is a huge genetic component to, you know, what's going on with people's symptoms. And, you know, we talk about the precursor to those resources to, for the brain to have what it needs in order to get the job done efficiently. That's all food. That's all diet, right? And we can supplement with those things if there is a deficit that needs to be addressed. But at the end of the day, part of what our jobs is, is as healthcare providers is to teach people how to eat or, and, and how to eat appropriately so that they don't have these things happen. You know, it's it's. It's interesting, we go to a conference, we've gone a couple of uh, times in the last few years, the Change Life and Destiny Conference, which is a group of uh, medical professionals that are focused on uh, not treating diseases, but preventing diseases through education and healthy, you know, lifestyle tips and tricks, as well as, you know, healthcare practices. And having the information about yourself on what is your brain function look like? What are your neurotransmitters look like? All of this information that we ha or have access to that we've never had access to before. It's important to, to know, you know, even if you are feeling good so that if one day you do, unfortunately ever get into a, a car accident, you have a reference to where, where my normal is. Uh, and so oftentimes, you know, I, I encourage people who, are are healthy but you know I you know I like to play hockey so all my hockey buddies I try to encourage hey you got you should come in get a brain scan so that you know what your brain looks like normally so that if god forbid ever anything ever happened on the ice you've got good information to make informed decisions about how to address your brain you know we do this for a lot of other organs in our body we but we don't think about that with brain health and that's arguably, and I think very easily arguably, the most important part of our our biological functioning. Yeah, exactly. That brain health is so important because it controls your whole being. And if your brain's not working well, uh, you're not getting good sleep, your mental processes uh, are not following through where you can relax, uh, think in a logical manner, uh, decrease your anxiety, then it makes sense to look at what are the underlying factors. And Cameron's been so helpful uh, with the techniques that he's described, uh, looking at a QEEG, which looks at those brain waves that you've been describing. Uh, and part of that is that it analyzes for, as you're talking about, uh, post uh, or past uh, concussion, past traumatic brain injuries, uh, that hinder the brain's function, uh, even though it may occur years and years ago, and maybe the underlying cause for uh, headaches, chronic migraines, uh, that type of thing, uh, even seizure activity. Yeah. Uh, and so it's important to look at those, uh, figure out. So if you have problems that are ongoing as an individual, 
my whole goal at Johnson Medical Associates is to look at the underlying causes, the triggering factors, what's gone on and what continues to go on, and then look at specific treatments for that. If you don't have an accurate diagnosis, whether it's brain, as we've been talking about, or some other part of the body, and then you can't have a focused treatment program. Right. And I see many, many people come in that have seen 10, 15 different doctors. Uh, they've described the symptoms to the physicians. Uh, they've been given the medicine for the symptom, but it missed the whole underlying reason for the problem. And once you're able to find out what the underlying reason is, the underlying cause and look at uh, addressing that directly, right? then you can get a good uh, therapeutic response typically from that type of treatment. And that's where the, the neurofeedback comes in, but assessment has to be done first. Absolutely. Uh, so you know specifically what you're dealing with. And just as you're doing your neurofeedback, there's many different techniques that you use f during neurofeedback to help normalize that brain function, right. that stimulatory or calming type mechanisms. Right. And like, so, you know, there's, there's ways to address that through, you know, other organs like, like the heart. And, you know, we like to follow that process that Eamon talks about and not change your brain, change your life to assess, address, and then reassess so that we're not, you know, we're not relying on the patient to give accurate, you know, an accurate depiction of what's going on in their everyday function, because a lot of times pe people don't know, you know, they're, they're, they're aware there's a problem, but they don't know the severity of the problem or, or how to quantify it. And, and that's why it's helpful to use these, you know, assessment tools, but also the, the assessment tools are embedded in the, the training tools. And I say training specifically and not treatment because what you do on your side is treatment all, all, you know, with, with medication and, um, and the things that you do as a doctor, um, but as a neurofeedback practitioner and, and a, again, trainer, I'm more like a, a, somebody who you go to at a gym that helps teach and train people how to take agency, um, over, over their health. And I think at, at the end of the day, holistic treatment in the medical field you have a, a level of, you know, responsibility to educate patients on how to take care of themselves. And otherwise, you know, everybody's coming to you, running at you for a problem. Exactly. And as we go through and look at these different patients that have chronic type problems and have ongoing difficulty with their central nervous system, it is important then to define what are the specific areas that's going to give you the best results with it. And so one of the ways that we look at it is, as we've talked about, uh, do an assessment. We do a cognitive assessment to look at the memory, how much anxiety, depression, stress is actually in that person's uh, life. Um, look at the brain waves to determine exactly what is going on with the different brain wave patterns mm -hmm. and then that gives us a, a baseline for working up a treatment program 
whether it's neurofeedback, whether it's hyperbaric, whether there's uh, underlying food reactions, uh, underlying environmental toxins uh, that the person is dealing with. Right. And as we described, this can be from childhood, whether it's the baseball bat <laughs> from your right. from your brother or, <clears throat> or whether it's uh, genetics uh, such as gluten intolerance uh, or whether uh, there's been ongoing uh, reactive processes that occurred. Uh, we see that every, different genetic patterns can be expressed with a stressful situation. Right, right. And so that genetic pattern can be turned on. It's just like with COVID. We've seen so many people that COVID was a very, very stressful situation, but it stimulated the sympathetic nervous system tremendously. Uh, people couldn't sleep. Uh, they were very anxious. Uh, they were short of breath, which was a constant uh, stress factor, right. adrenaline-producing situation. Uh, and individuals' endogenous epinephrine, the epinephrine that you make, is much more stimulatory than what we can give you from uh, external sources. Yeah. Uh, and so that can keep your heart rate up. It can keep your uh, mind fuzzy, uh, difficulty in focusing, right. uh, all those different areas. So uh, looking at the mind, evaluating the whole central nerve nervous system process with the QEEG is, is, is essential. And then, as he was mentioning, is when we deal with people that have had strokes, traumatic brain injuries, uh, encephalitis, uh, all those different things that can affect brain function, which we treat with hyperbaric to help heal the brain tissue, then we can measure that process uh, and healing process with QEEG. Right, right. And so, you know, as a list of what are the things that we use QEEG for, or what are the list of, you know, symptoms or, or areas of deficit that we would like to, you know, assess with a QEEG. So this is depression and anxiety, ADHD, your big three in the psychiatric, you know, PTSD, um, history of head injury, like we've said, environmental toxicity, or anything else that might be causing central nervous system inflammation, um, autism, um, we've got, uh, folks who are doing peak performance training, people who are like, you know, I, I'm, I'm functioning to a high level, but I want to see how much better can I be? Um, you know, people, people go and do brain training, just like they go to the gym to do training. You know, they just want to be the, the best versions of themselves possible. Um, and so there's there a lot of different things that we can work with. And you don't always have to have a problem in order to, you know, work on these things and take care of your brain and take care of your body. Um, well, you're talking about peak performance and we see a, a group of athletes that we work with. Uh, some of them have had injuries uh, like concussions or head injuries. Uh, others want to figure out their peak performance, how to get better rest, how to recover quicker. Uh, hyperbaric helps with recovering, help hyperbaric helps heal traumatic brain injuries that they've had, whether they've been playing football, soccer, or we see a group of hockey players that have 
yep. head injuries. Uh, it helps heal that brain. Uh, you can measure then the healing factors by uh, QEEG and then help the brain recover with treating the connectivity defects or the brainwave uh, dysfunction that has occurred due to this trauma. Right. Right. So thank you so much, Cameron, for yeah, being with us for today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. We been appreciate your valuable asset to uh, Johnson Medical Associates and have provided a great wealth of information today. I hope it's helpful to those that are listening, those that listen to this program. Uh, if you have questions, do not hesitate to call Johnson Medical Associates at 972-479-0400, or you go, go to our website, Johnson Medical Associates, and it describes what we've been talking about today. Uh, there are other podcasts uh, on the website to help you understand further some of the things that we've been talking about but not addressed in great detail today. Thanks again. Uh, appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.